Well, hey, good morning, everybody. How are you today? Hey, it's so great to see you this weekend. You know, we're doing this series called Playing With Fire where we are looking at the things in our lives that burn us, that cause us a lot of damage. And what we're doing is we're asking a key question. We're saying like, Lord, how can we prevent from being scorched? All right? How can we get ahead of the things that can really do uh, a lot of, of, of just push us into places where we don't want to be? And so we're looking at things like our jam-packed schedules, our marriages, how we navigate singleness, all these sorts of topics. And, uh, and, we're, and we're going to God's word for wisdom and guidance. And so today we're going to look at the topic of money. Show of hands, all right? Who has ever been burned by money? Raise your hand, throw your hand up. Yeah, look at this, keep them up, keep them up. Look around, now if you are not raising your hand, are you breathing air right now? (laughs) Seriously, Uh, most of us have been singed a time or two with this thing called money. Like for example, there's a lot of ways this can happen, but here's here's some options, like that time, number one, that you loan money to your cousin, yeah? Yeah, you thought that was going to be a good idea? What were you thinking? And so here's what happens, right? You loan your money. He's, he's in a, a, a jam, and he promises to pay you back. And so you give him that money, and he gets out of his jam. But then you never hear from him. And then it gets weirder, right, at the 4th of July barbecue, and you see each other. And he just kind of looks at you, and you look at him awkward, and he turns around and walks the other way. You're not being paid back. And then here's what the conclusion is. Two months later, you see his Facebook post, and he's in Hawaii, yeah? (laughs) Really super great guy, right? Or how about the time when um, two weeks after you get back from your honeymoon, your spouse confesses to having 40,000 in credit card debt that you didn't know about? (laughs) And now you're one half legally responsible in paying it back. Now, that's not a personal story, okay? This is not Christy and Mai's <laughs> personal experiences, okay? Or uh, here's a kind of a humorous one. Uh, that time that you let your friend's kid's house sit for you while you were on vacation and you get home and you walk in and they've trashed it. They've completely just wrecked your house, ruined your floors, and you know you're gonna have to pay to get it professionally cleaned. And then before they leave, they hold out their hands and expect to get paid for feeding your cat. Now, what's wrong with that? The number one thing that's wrong with that is you have a cat and not a dog, okay? (laughs) You do. That's why that went south. (laughs) Or lastly, you trusted God for for that East Bay starter home. That beautiful $800,000 palace of popcorn ceiling, right? (laughs) That three-bedroom, two-bath ranch architectural masterpiece. And then you saved, and you trusted, and God provided, and you got into the market, and, and, and it's just like a miracle, right? And then 2008 happens. Ooh. You know, a lot of us here at Cornerstone, we lost our houses, and that really burned. And, and in some cases, we're still feeling the effects of that. But the point of all these examples is not to depress you, but simply to point out that there's a number of ways in which this thing called money can hurt us. And admittedly, some of these scorch marks are self-inflicted. Other times, it's because of the cousins in our life, other people, and how they handle money around us. And then there's just things out of our control, circumstances, a recession, an accident, an illness, 
a natural disaster, those things hit us and they affect our finances in such a way that it really puts us in a position of pain. And so there's just tons of ways that money can hurt us. And if you think about why that is, it's because money actually interacts with a lot of areas of our life, doesn't it? Money uh, interplays and connects with our jobs, our careers, our marriages. We know this from Dave Ramsey. He's taught us this, that one of the top reasons why couples get divorced in America is because of money issues. Money issues can tear a loving couple apart to the point where they need to split up. Other relationships, can, uh, it can get fractured from uh, from money issues. Uh, money touches our character, our leisure time, a lot of our decisions. And so with all these different bridges of connection, right, there's a lot of opportunity to go sideways. But the good news for you and me is that God's word has a ton to say about money and God wants to give us guidance. He wants to give us direction. He doesn't leave us in the dark at all. And there's tons and tons of scripture throughout Old and New Testament uh, about money. But one of the best places to go is the book of Proverbs. Now, the book of Proverbs is what we're kind of working through in this series. And it turns out that Proverbs has a ton to say here. Uh, for example, I read I read the book of Proverbs several times in preparation for today's message, and I pulled out all the material that directly deals with saving, spending, wealth, debt, loaning, work, all these money-related issues, and found out something rather shocking. Over 20% of all the content in Proverbs deals with our topic today. And so what I did was I sort of collated all of this content, and I'm just going to offer you a summary of the teachings of the book of Proverbs, just a general summary, the thesis about what it says regarding money. Here it is. Proverbs teaches us that money has the power to bless and to burn, therefore be wise with it. Isn't this true, right? Am I pointing out the obvious? And yet, it's something that we need to hear, and it lines up with real life, and which is why, by the way, Proverbs is such an awesome book all around, is because it actually isn't just theoretical spirituality, it's real life, table talk spirituality. And so, this is kind of this summary statement, and, and you know, I was kind of thinking about how to, how to illustrate this. Think about a campfire. Uh, who's been camping recently? Anybody like to camp? How about glamping? Glamour camping? Uh, who likes air conditioning? That's my family. We like it too much, right? Uh, but camping is fun, and, and oftentimes you have a campfire, and a campfire is, is really a blessing, right? Because it not only throws off warmth, but you can cook on it. It really, it brings unity. You, you gather around and you tell stories, and you feel closer. And so campfires are wonderful, but campfires can be dangerous when, what, they get out of control? And pretty soon the wind kicks up and an ember takes that little flame into the field behind the tent and burns it down. And then that's when things get dangerous. And so that's essentially what Proverbs is teaching us here. And so therefore we need to be wise with it. So today we're going to talk about this. We're going to cover two ways that Proverbs teaches us how to be wise with this thing called my money. Okay, so the first way is we're going to recognize the limited power of money. We're going to unpack this flow of thought. And use, and use several different uh, passages. And then secondly, we're going to really face this thing called greed head on. 
Uh, This is something in our lives that's really sneaky, and we're going to understand why this is and then how we can break its power in our lives. And so that's where we're headed today. So I'd like you to turn now, as we jump into this first point, to Proverbs chapter 10, verse 15. And we're going to be kind of jumping all around Proverbs so you can stay nimble and stay loose uh, as you uh, follow along with this. But we're going to look at this first passage and... It's going to lead us into a progression of thought as we discover the limited power of money. So let's jump in. Now, first of all, here's what this passage, just read it. It says, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Okay, so the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, but poverty is the ruin of the poor. Okay, so what is this saying? It's simply pointing out a truism of life. And that is when harmful things come our way, wealthy people are more protected from those harmful things than poor people. In other words, if I have a certain amount of wealth at my disposal, I can use that wealth as a bit of a buffer, as a shield, so that I can make it through that difficult time, that recession, that that unexpected job loss, that financial crisis that I wasn't anticipating. And when I go through those things because I have this wall of wealth, it ends up not being that big of a deal for me because I'm protected, I'm safe from it. But it's also saying that the poor don't have this margin. And so when you're poor, you don't have a wall. I mean, just think about it. You're exposed, you're vulnerable. Uh, When calamity hits, right, even the smallest of misfortunes can ruin someone. Uh, I don't know, we've known Christy's mom, uh, Christy growing up, her margin for financial error was so slim and she worked so hard, but whenever there was a big car repair bill, oh my goodness, it was like she was on the precipice of poverty. Uh, A prescription medicine can crush you. Any unexpected bill can literally just kind of push you right into the shipwreck called poverty and there's no buffer from the storm, right? When you're poor, you just get wiped out. So I was, at a, I was at a sandwich shop in Brentwood, and it was kind of the kind of shop where you go to the counter and then you follow the sandwich maker as they're building your food, right? And when I, it was a busy day in this store, and, and, um, and when I walked up and it was my turn, the, the employee behind the counter, I, I could tell right away the guy was totally sick, and he shouldn't have been at work. And so he asked me what my order was, and I told him, and I'm just kind of... And then the whole time he's kind of putting my sandwich together, he's doing this. He's going... <laughs> and I'm, I'm just, okay, I, I, why, Lord, what did I do? I mean... <laughs> and then, okay, it gets worse. So at the very end, right before he buttons up the sandwich, his nose drips right into it. <laughs> And he didn't see it, and I saw it. And I'm just like bug-eyed. I'm like, I, I. And then he's, you know, splitting it in half and wrapping it up, and you know, here you go. And uh, I I just go, I, hey, listen, um, can I just talk to you over here in the corner of the store for a second? And so I kind of discreetly and politely uh, pulled him over to the side, and I said, hey, look, man, I I really, I can't eat this, bro. Um, You you, you snotted, you slimed my sandwich, bud. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, he was so apologetic. And he's just like, man, I'm so sorry. I just had to be here today. And so we just agreed to part ways amicably, right? Okay? Uh, Irreconcilable differences with my sandwich. And and so 
I walked out and I'm in the parking lot and I'm like kind of upset. I'm a little mad, I'm hangry, first of all, but then I'm frustrated because why did this guy, why didn't he stay home and you know, convalesce and get healthy before he came in? He's a food service worker, he ought to know all this and I'm sort of having this little temper tantrum. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit sort of kind of got my attention a little bit as I thought about this. And the Lord was like saying, hey, hey, Billy, what if this guy needed to be at work? You don't know his situation. What if he needed those hours? What if he's got no margin of error in his life? And I really felt kind of convicted. Like here I am, a spoiled, you know, I don't know, pastor guy, because my sandwich wasn't, you know, healthy or whatever. And, <laughs> and, and it got me thinking about this passage, right? Kind of put those things together. So the bottom line here is that this passage is pointing out that money has limited power. It has the power to protect. And it uses the analogy that it's like a walled city. And so you're the city and your wealth is this wall. And it really fits right into what the Old Testament ethos was all about thousands of years ago because cities back then, uh, a walled city meant protection, it meant safety. And when danger approached, when you know, pirates came or when you know, wild beasts were attacking, you could just run into the city, close the gate, and you'd be safe and protected. And in some cases, the walls were built such that it was actually an offensive weapon. And so you could climb in uh, and these towers and these battlements and like when the enemy came, you actually were like, hey, come a little closer so I can kill you, right? And, and it was a place though that represented security. And this passage is saying our wealth is like that. It's also saying that there's, just a, there's a practical application, but it's also a psychological Benefit, Because when you have a wall to run behind, you can tend to take bigger risks in your life when you know you have a place of safety. And so this sort of goes, you know, take this a little bit into investing. And so when you take bigger risks and those pay off, well, then you can actually have bigger rewards and you can build your wall even taller. And so there's a psychological sort of capacity for us when we have a safe zone, when we have a code red, that we can kind of put ourselves out there. Uh, I had a buddy who, years and years ago, pre-recession, he left his job in the city. He had a really good job at some financial firm, and um, he seemed kind of cavalier about it to me, and I was kind of wondering, like, dude, why aren't you more desperate to find another job? And things kind of came his way, and he turned them down. He's like, yeah, I'm kind of holding out for something really specific, and I'm just looking at him going, dude, you got a mortgage in the Bay Area? You got kids? You got soccer bills. I mean, you have all this stuff, right? And, and, and I'm kind of more worried about his life than he is. Well, eventually it dawned on me because I'm slow to the party a lot of times that he had a wall. His parents were really wealthy. And if, man, all heck broke loose in his life, he had a place of safety to run. And that was hard for me to relate to because that was not my situation. I didn't even think about that. And so he could take risks with his career that I wouldn't even dream of. I couldn't consider those things, but that was his situation. It's talking about the limited power of money. It's a real thing. And one of the real life implications of having money is safety. And so this is actually what drives a lot of people to build wealth. It's not necessarily the acquisition of stuff and things and more elaborate experiences that you can pay for. It's actually... um, I need to be safe from financial disaster. And so I'm going to build my wall. 
And you'll notice here in the passage, I'm sure you did, that there's no judgment here. Proverbs isn't kind of dropping the hammer. It's just pointing this out. And in fact, if you continue to read Proverbs, and I encourage you to do so on this, t- on this subject, uh, it encourages us, God encourages us to build reserves, to build walls, so that way we have a measure of, of safety in our lives when things get lean. You know, don't eat all of the harvest. Only fools do that, that sort of thing. But this is the key to this teaching, as we can't take that mentality too far. Because if we look to money as being our ultimate protector, we are gonna get burned eventually. Why? Because there's things that money can't protect us against. And so this is what Proverbs teaches us if we look at the whole body of work. Money is not our omni-protector, guys. Money can't shield you from everything. And so if you look to it as it's this all like safety producing, anxiety uh, mitigating force in your life, you are going to scorch yourself. Now I wanna uh, punctuate this by looking at another passage. This time turn to chapter 18, so forward eight chapters, verse 11, and this is gonna come out again. It says this, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. So look here, this, look up at the screen. Um, no, look down at your Bibles. No, look up at the screen. You're like, you're doing this. You're so compliant. But here, the first clause of the sentence, the wealth of the rich is their fortified city. So here we have the metaphor of the fortifications again, right? Just like in the last passage. But the second clause of the sentence, it's very different. Because it says the wealthy, they imagine this wall, they imagine it a wall too high to scale. And so now we have a little bit more commentary on the danger of looking at wealth to be our omniprotector. Wealthy people, it says, start to eventually imagine their wall is unscalable. And it's saying that we can begin to fall into a trap where we think so highly about our wealth and our ability to provide that we imagine that we have unlimited protection and that this wall is impenetrable and that money becomes our omniprotector and that nothing bad can ever happen to me if I've built this wall and I stand behind it and this wealth wall, all possible contingencies are accounted for. I'm safe no matter what. I'm untouchable, I'm invulnerable, therefore, now I can relax. I can finally have peace. But this passage is teaching us that kind of thinking is an illusion. Look at this word, imagine. Circle this. If you have a tablet, double tap it, highlight it, I don't know, however you can sort of highlight this. This is an imaginary reality. This, this person is saying, or this, the, the author is saying, if we fall into that, we're imagining that money can be a savior. So it's warning us about money's limitations. Money has a limited power to protect. And so this word imagine in the Hebrew, it's used several times throughout the Old Testament. It's a really fascinating word. It's like five or six times it pops up. And what it literally means from Hebrew to English, it's a mental image like a mirage. A mirage, you guys know what a mirage is, right? A mirage is something that you see when you're desperate and it appears to be real, it appears to be you know, n- refreshing and then you get up to it and it just kind of wisps away in the wind because it's fake. And money can be a kind of mirage. So I have to ask you this question. And I want you to go deep with this. So is there a part 
of you that believes the mirage, the illusion that if I can only attain a certain level of wealth, then I can finally have peace in my life. Then I can finally be safe. Then I can let go of my fear. Listen, if this is where you are today, if you have tied your peace to a certain level of wealth, if your lack of anxiety or anxiety is somehow bonded with this thing called money, that's a trap. That's heck a trap. Are the young people still saying that word today? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It's an optical illusion. This is a hard teaching. You gotta have a little bit of humor to take the edge off, right? If you only, I'm sorry, if, if we understand that money can only take us so far and then its efficacy ends, which is the teaching of Proverbs, then that's healthy. Proverbs says money will eventually run out of money, if you know what I mean. And so it's going to fail us. It's going to let us down. And so we would be wise then, the wise thing to do, the wise approach, the wise theology of money then, is to not look to money to be our ultimate savior, but then to look to something else that can really ultimately save us. And then whatever that thing is, lean into that. Build your life on that. Focus on that. And that's the wise way to live. And so then the question becomes, well, what is that thing that is the omniprotector? And Proverbs tells us, actually, just look up. Uh, One verse, we'll go up to verse 10 in chapter 18. It absolutely answers that question as well. It says this, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower. Ah, you see, you have this wall, this tower imagery. But instead of this wall being analogous to wealth and money, the author is saying that it's actually this place of security is Jesus. The righteous, it says, run to it and are safe. And so the alternative to looking to money is to look to Christ. And this passage just totally, it just pops. He's our fortified. He's our fortification. He's our fortified wall. He's our strong defense. And wisdom says, you really want something that's going to save you. You really want to have a life that is marked by peace and fulfillment and free from anxiety, then stop looking to money to do those uh, works in your life, to provide those feelings in your life. Rather, look to him. He's our wall. He's our battlements. Like, he's our protector. And if we look to him and nothing else to be what only he can be, and we stop looking to money what it could never be, then that's living the wise life. And so, for some of us, today, this is simply a reminder. Maybe you've drifted a bit. For others of us, this is revolutionary. And maybe you are at a place where this isn't where you struggle. Awesome. But for some of us, our next best best step is to just stop looking to money as our shield and run to him. We've created this apparition, this fantasy. And instead, what we need to do is transfer our security, our trust from our wealth to our Jesus. And that's really our best next step. All right, let's put this in our pockets. I don't want you to pull that out later this week and ponder these, but I want to move on to the second wise way that we approach our money. Tackle a baffling thing that has flummoxed many of us, and that is this question, why is greed so sneaky? 
Now, where did I get this? Well, the, the seed thought first um, was planted in me by Pastor Steve about a year ago in a great sermon. Pastor talked about how in 30 plus years of pastoral ministry work, not one time has anybody ever come to him and confessed that they were struggling with greed in their lives. He said in this message, I think it was last September, he said he's heard from people literally regarding almost every conceivable struggle with sin that a person can have, and they're bringing that for pastoral counsel, for prayer, for, for help in overcoming those things, except, except for somebody admitting, hey, Pastor Steve, I have a problem with greed. I think I spend too much money on myself. Now, why is that? If that's true, and I find that true in my own less limited experience, or more limited experience, excuse me, in ministry, why is it so elusive? Why is it hard for any one of us, me or you, to recognize the issue of greed and materialism in our lives? Because here's the thing, nobody thinks they're greedy. Who thinks they're greedy? Greedy people are always somebody else. Now, Proverbs actually calls us out on this front and center. So turn once more again to uh, Proverbs, but this time in verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 7. So I think that's flipping backwards now. Backwards and forwards, here we go. Just like life. Here's what it says. One person pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another person pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Now what does this mean? Well this means a lot of things. One person pretends to be rich, yet actually in real life has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, and yet they actually do have great means. Now on one level this passage just means, look, don't judge a book by its cover. Okay, there's, there's a lot of deeper things going on than what you see on the outside. That's true, right? That's true? Anybody listening? Are you guys, are you guys looking at Raider scores? Or is, it, is, it, is, it, are they, is there a game on right now? Now that I've implanted that idea, now you're going to check. Okay, sorry. This is true. But it also has another meaning. And that's this. That, okay, this is saying, on another level, money has this weird power to get us to think that we're something that we're really not. It just does. It has this weird power. And so we think we're something we're not. And in this case, okay, let's start with the second clause, right? Um, in this case, money can convince poor, this group of people, that they can actually afford stuff that they really can't, like that expensive vacation, like that Tesla. But it's a pretense. And this actually describes a lot of Americans who have access to credit cards and other debt vehicles. Because they live this out, Americans live this out, they pretend to be something they're not. And debt lets us do that. So let me just stop here for a second. Because we, we actually, as a people, we need to stop pretending we're something we're not. And we need to stop using debt to do so. Credit cards have allowed us, guys, to make pricey purchases that we really can't afford and then spread those payments out over time and then pay 18% interest over it. And that is killing us because we are not living in reality. I read this article uh, this week from the New York Post. It came out a few weeks ago. And it's saying something actually positive about millennials. Yeah, something positive about millennials. Very rare. So what it says is millennials are actually rejecting credit cards. And so, and so much unlike, excuse me, their predecessors, Gen X, my, uh, my generation, they're saying no to credit cards. But then the article went on to say that 
companies are trying to figure out ways to still get millennials into debt. And so what they're doing is, companies like PayPal, they're working directly with uh, online retailers to offer financing on individual purchases. And so you can be shopping for bed sheets or concert tickets and then finance that individual purchase. And millennials and others are saying yes to this, to the tune of 30% interest. Don't you hate credit card companies and PayPal right now? Oh, PayPal, you're the worst. That was supposed to be funny, I guess not. Maybe half of you work for PayPal, I'm sorry. Actually, they're not the worst, we're the worst. Because we're the ones that are telling them to keep doing this in our lives, aren't we? So the problem is then, we're busy pretending that we're something we're not, and we're not busy thinking about how these decisions impact us. And so gang, we just literally have to live in reality. And because we can afford a financed monthly payment for 600 thread count Egyptian cotton bedsheets for 10 months, we shouldn't necessarily say yes to that. Let's flip the script. Let's talk about the second group on the passage, and it talks about wealthy, right? And so they're well off. They actually have means. They actually have wealth behind them, but somehow money has convinced them that they're really poor and that they need more, and this also describes a lot of Americans, doesn't it? Ah, a wonderful passage, popping out truth all over the place. The bottom line is when our relationship to money is skewed, it isn't aligned properly. It distorts reality. And so this is the answer to our question. Greed is sneaky because it distorts reality around us. Here's what greed does. It takes what's really happening in your life and makes you seem like the opposite is true. And then based on those false images, you make decisions that you shouldn't. And so for, for those who, who have means... It means that we're pretending that we're poor and so we're saying no to a lot of things that would involve generosity and those who don't have means, we go into debt and pretend like we really do. And so really greed is not necessarily a, a, a struggle of the wealthy. It's a struggle for everybody, regardless of your tax bracket. If I'm not seeing myself through the lens of reality, then I'm not living a healthy life towards this thing called money. And greed makes it hard to do that. Jesus actually taught us this. So let's pull out of Proverbs for a second. You don't have to turn there. I'm gonna throw it up on the screen. Here's what Jesus taught. He taught this all over the place, but here's one representative verse in Luke 12. Jesus said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist, consist in the abundance of possessions. Just watch out. Now, this is really fascinating because there's all kinds of other sins that Jesus actually calls out, but in none of those cases does he ever give us this warning to watch out or to be on our guard. For example, Jesus never says to watch out for adultery or to be on guard against theft or murder. Why? Because when you're murdering someone, you know you're doing it. If you're in your right mind. You know you're committing adultery when you're committing adultery. There's no ambiguity there. There's no like, oh, I didn't, I, I didn't know that. And so Jesus knows that those other things are so concrete, but this thing called greed is very sneaky, and it's hard to self-identify when we're struggling with this. And so there's a special warning. 
So the question then is, if it's so sneaky, how do I recognize it in my life? How do I know if I'm being afflicted by this? Well, there's a lot of ways you can tell, but I'm going to offer three quick practical litmus tests that you can take to see if this is something that maybe has uh, taken root to some degree in your life. Real quickly, we know greed is lurking if our integrity around finances has been compromised, let's say in the last 12 months. And this is a question that only you can answer. Is your integrity, you could be so integritable about every area of your life, but when it comes to money things, business deals, taxes, all these types of situations, if your integrity has been compromised, then well maybe greed is lurking just out of your peripheral vision. Or secondly, the the next test is if we're looking at our budgets and our financed payments have eaten up most or all of our budget margin. That's kind of more goes to the point I just said, sort of self-explanatory. And then finally, we know greed might be lurking in our lives if we're completely unwilling to be accountable to someone with our finances. So if you're married, you need to be accountable to your spouse first and foremost. No secrets. No secrets about money. Listen, can I just be frank for a second? Married couples disrobe in front of each other. That's a healthy marriage. But oftentimes we fail to disrobe financially. And so it's time to do that. But that's just the start. And let me talk to the men for a second. If you don't have someone else in your life that you have been accountable to regarding your finances besides your spouse, then you may be struggling with this thing called greed. We've got to be accountable. Oh, well, Billy, hey, that's, um, that's private stuff. That's, that, that's nobody's business except for mine. Really? What if you're about ready to fall off a cliff or walk off a cliff and you have not let anybody in? And if you had just been accountable, just had some trust with a godly person in your life, and I'm not talking about your Ameriprise financial planner, talking about someone in your life group. Someone, a brother, a sister that can say, hey, uh, maybe you should rethink that. If these tests are kind of, I don't know, maybe um, bubbling to the surface right now, then then I think that's something you need to look at. All right, let's, let's quickly talk about how we can break the power of greed. It's sneaky. How, how can we organize ourselves in such a way that it doesn't burn us anymore? All right, Proverbs helps us there too. Let's look at this as our last passage for today. It's uh, in chapter 11, verse 24. Chapter 11, verse 24. Here it is. It says, there's one who scatters yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it, that leads to poverty. Okay, this is, okay, this is what we call a paradox. Uh, you're going to find a ton of these paradoxes in the book of Proverbs. Like the most classic one is it says, uh, answer a fool according to his folly and wisdom will come. And then the next verse says, don't answer a fool according to his folly because that is foolish. Well, hey, hey, Proverbs, which one is it? Well, it's a paradox. It depends on the situation. Well, this is a paradox because it describes like this sort of obvious logical fallacy. If you scatter, well, then that means you have less. But here it's saying the opposite. Or if you gather, you should actually have more. You should increase. But it's, again, saying the opposite. And so the teaching of this is summarized in this little phrase. Scattering gathers and gathering scatters. 
Here it is. There you go. We got it. Scattering gathers and gathering scatters. Have I confused you yet? I have. Somebody said yes. Thank you for responding. You get a free donut outside in the lobby. Okay, so this is sort of true and sort of not true. Here's where it is true in two areas. Farming. You guys know this. I grew up on a dairy farm in Oregon. And we grew, um, we had Holstein cows and we had brown Swiss cows that give chocolate milk. It was an amazing thing. <laughs> but we also, we also grew corn and wheat and alfalfa, things to feed those beautiful animals so that they would produce the purest milk in the state of Oregon. But one thing we learned is that if we're going to have a crop of corn, we've got to take some of the harvest from last year and spread it around on the ground. And the end result was through this scattering that we would gather much more than we started with. Farming, basic stuff. It's also true, secondly, with our money. If I gather and I gather and I gather and I hoard and I hoard and I hoard my money, I end up losing myself. I end up decreasing myself. The opposite is true. So this passage is teaching us about generosity and how generosity breaks the power of greed. And the wisest way to live my life, the more fulfilling and satisfying way to live my life is to be generous with this thing called my money because it's a blessing. And if I'm not generous with my money, it will burn me. It will lead to poverty. So scattering is good. It breaks the sneaky power of greed. Now, using this farming analogy about scattering, what we didn't do is just, just go out willy-nilly and just throw corn seed around. Okay, farmers don't do that. If you do that, you're not going to be a farmer for very long. But what we did do, though, was we put the seed exactly where it needed to be. We prepped the soil, and we were very careful and very methodical in our Swiss engineering precision way of literally putting the seed exactly in the place and in the proportions that it needed to go. Now, that's a good farmer, and it's the same with your money. How you scatter is you pray, and you have a conversation with God about where he wants you to be generous. So the, the generosity conversation with God is really, it's a where and not an if. Where can I be a blessing? Where can my family demonstrate the positive power of money by partnering with God and what he's doing to build his kingdom? And so for some of us, our next best step today is a conversation with God regarding the location of our generosity. And ironically, the location of my generosity is the same location where the power of greed begins to dissipate and melt off of my life. And ultimately, what we're doing when we engage fully in this process is we are following Jesus and we are becoming more like him. Whatever your next step is, there is this green-eyed, pernicious, sneaky, vitriolic, poisonous thing called greed that if we live in this culture, there's a pretty good chance that at some level it's affecting me just because I'm swimming in the water of America. And how we approach this as Christ followers as we face it head on. And we show greed who's our boss. Is stuff our boss? Is wealth our boss? No. Jesus, he's our CEO. He's our boss. And when we do that, oh my goodness, so much less burning. So much more blessing. 
So that's all I have today. What I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna pray for us that we could now live this out. So if you would, please, let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you so much for showing us that to be wise with money is to be walking in step with you. So we ask for your help today to do so. From the burns that money has caused in our lives, I'm praying for healing now to come through. I ask your Holy Spirit to heal us where we've been scorched, where we've been taken advantage of, and where we've made shameful mistakes. Lord, heal us now so that we're in a position of strength to live this out in a way that is a blessing to others. So help us then to recognize that money is not our unscalable wall, that is not this imaginary uh, in, uh, impenetrable shield, Lord. Rather, you are those things in our life. Help us also to recognize the ways that greed has warped our thinking, even about ourselves. And most of all, Lord, we turn to you because you were the perfect model. You handled money par excellence, Jesus. You were the ultimate scatterer, Lord, because first of all, you scattered yourself. You were on the cross, literally being broken into pieces and scattering little bits of your blood so that under that blood we may have new life. We may be completely transformed. And the reason you did that was to gather us to yourself. And so my prayer is today that first and foremost, we would be reminded of the power and the beauty and the generosity, the free generosity of Jesus. And so now, Lord, help us to be like you, to go and do likewise and we pray this in your powerful name. Amen. 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 All right, guys, thanks so much.